October 6th, CSI, the global phenomenon, opens a brand new chapter in Las Vegas, and an existential threat calls the crime lab's legacy and future into question. A brilliant new team of investigators will enlist the help of friends from the past as they deploy the latest forensic techniques to do what they do best, follow the evidence, in order to preserve and serve justice in Sin City and uncover the truth. CSI Vegas series premiere Wednesday, October 6th on CBS. Wednesday, October 6th, CSI, The Global Phenomenon, opens a brand new chapter in Las Vegas, and an existential threat calls the crime lab's legacy and future into question. A brilliant new team of investigators will enlist the help of friends from the past as they deploy the latest forensic techniques to do what they do best, follow the evidence, in order to preserve and serve justice in Sin City and uncover the truth. CSI Vegas series premiere Wednesday, October 6th on CBS. Some uh, thoughts before we continue. This is uh, The Santa Claus Murders Part 2, and you're listening to Who Killed Teresa. Uh, that uh, area, Cote de Lies, where the heist took place, is very familiar to me uh, as a kid. Um, a, lot of, a lot of things we talk about were not. Like, I've never been that far east in Montreal to where... Uh, the Philippe Pinel um, Institute is. Uh, I wasn't aware of the Bordeaux prison until I was in my 40s. But Cote de Lies, I know. My dad worked around there. And, uh, you know, it's kind of place where your father would take you to, because the airport was right there, he'd take you to watch the airplanes land. It's that kind of place. It's like, uh, you know, the industrialized area around the Toronto airport or, thinking uh, Cote d'Elias is like Highway 70, um, where I live here, running between Durham and uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, adjacent to the airport. So, as I say, very familiar. Uh, the other thing I'm thinking about is uh, kind of the, the continuity of, of time. So this is this heist is in 1962. A year later, 19, December 63, Three, we'd have the um, um, the alleged death of Armand Duhamel in the Bordeaux prison, followed by the alleged suicide of Ziggy Wiseman. So that's 63, 64, you get Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. 65, you get uh, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. So if you're trying to think of the, the continuity of time, that's where all of this fits in. I'm no expert, but for me, the, the 60s is the era of the bank robbery in Montreal and in Quebec. Uh, and the early 70s becomes the era of the hostage taking. And I would characterize the late 70s as the era of the serial killer. Although we're not going to go into that today. It's just my pet theory. And uh, unlike, you know, an a uh, Something like the the Charles Marion affair that dragged on for months, uh, even years. Um, from the time of the heist in December, December fourteenth, to the the uh, to the, the arrest of the three uh, perpetrators is very collapsed. Um, 
took just under a month. Uh, there was some criticism of that, uh, which we'll get into, but um, the manhunt um, was very, very efficient. Um, well, I don't know if it was efficient. A lot of resources were used, um, as we'll get into, but uh, they, they, the police did get their men. Hunt started almost immediately. A fire truck was summoned, its ladder was raised to its full height, and a man climbed to the top and scanned the vicinity, while policemen tramped through the snow-covered fields, looking for the trail of the man who jumped out the side window. The fugitive on foot had circled back to Côte de Liesse, a half-mile away. He discarded his rifle and hood in a junk pile behind a building, walked into the town and country motel, and nonchalantly asked a waitress to call him a taxi. When a truck driver delivering linen to the motel, no one around was aware of what had happened down the road, agreed to give him a lift west to the city of Dorval. He didn't wait for the taxi to arrive. At a shopping center in Dorval, the fugitive switched into a taxi and returned to the town of Mount Royal. Police now know his route back led him again along Cote de Lies, past the bank. Looks like there's been an accident or a holdup or something, the taxi driver said. I guess so, replied his passenger. Very briefly, I know that shopping center at Dorval Circle. There used to be a Hudson's Bay um, department store there. Probably still is. Um, but we'd get go. We'd go there a lot. I saw there's a movie theater there where I saw Escape from the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> uh, I saw Jaws there with my sister Teresa. So it's quite, uh, quite Dorval Circle is very familiar uh, for me. Uh, also, um, uh, um, th- this is an era when um, uh, Saint Laurent had its own police force. It was not yet consolidated into the Montreal force, uh, which uh, will become somewhat um, significant. By now, hundreds of policemen had sealed off the island of Montreal, theoretically. Detachments of police set up roadblocks at all bridges leading off the island. Plains clothesmen poured into railway stations, bus terminals, and the Dorval Airport to keep watch on all departures. Cars by the dozen were stopped at the bridges, the occupants questioned, then waved on. But Montreal is an easy place in which to get lost in a crowd, particularly on a Friday when the daily exodus from the island is swollen by weekenders. By nightfall, no trace of the fugitives had been found. The chief of the Saint Laurent police immediately put the investigation in the charge of Detective Sergeant Doug Stone, a rugged 38-year-old ex-sailor who was one of the few survivors of the torpedo destroyer HMCS Ottawa 
in the Second World War. A policeman since his discharge from the Navy, Doug Stone, had a reputation as a tireless investigator. He needed extraordinary energy to sustain him through the tasks he was about to undertake. Assigned to work with him on the case was a quick-witted little Quebec provincial police sergeant, Roland Aubuchon, a policeman for 30 years. In addition, the criminal investigative bureaus of the Montreal Police and the Quebec Provincial Police each assigned 30 detectives to the case, all experienced investigators of holdups and homicides. As darkness settled on the Montreal region Friday night, the streets erupted with police activity. In response to anonymous telephone tips on dangerous men in the apartment across the street with machine guns, police sent carloads of detectives armed with machine guns and bulletproof vests to haul out the tenants and bring them to headquarters for questioning. Witnesses with a description of the man who escaped on foot were shown pictures from the police files of hoodlums with records of robbery and violence. That's him, said a woman, pointing to one of the mugshots. Oh, there's a reminder that it's Christmas Eve tomorrow. (laughs) Mugshots. Somewhat surprised, for the man picked out had ostensibly been leading a quiet existence. A detective asked, are you sure? The woman looked again and nodded. Pretty sure. A coroner's warrant was issued for the suspect's arrest. Down on the notorious Lower Main, police action took on its most spectacular, if not most productive, aspect. The Main, a gaudy strip of cheap theaters, nightclubs, taverns, pool rooms extended from the waterfront up into the heart of downtown Montreal, harbors the biggest concentration of criminals in the nation. On this Friday night, crowds gathered outside nightclubs as squad cars roared to a stop and spewed out dozens of detectives. All exits were covered. Washrooms were checked. Everyone the police suspected might have a shred of information was herded down to the headquarters. We don't expect to catch the murderers themselves tonight, said a gray-haired detective who had been working on the main for three decades. We want to make a show of force to let the underworld know the pressure is really on. It's a lot tougher to hide out then. This operation was repeated over and over again. That's that's a particularly good piece of writing there by by Tim Burke. Although um, I think a lot of Montrealers would would question uh, certainly today the the main being uh, that you know home of the most what is it the biggest concentration of criminals in the nation is a little overboard. I mean certainly in the sixties. I mean, that's the era when 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 the playwright Michel Tremblay was coming up and he wrote plays, you know, like St. Carmen of, of the Maine. It was rough. Today, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't live in Montreal, but my, my take on it is rather touristy, although, you know, some might disagree with me. There, you know, there's, there are a lot better storytellers of Montreal out there than me. I'm simply the one with the podcast. 
parade of underworld characters shuffled in and out of interrogation sessions, other investigators were considering the mad dog candidates who qualified for such a savage crime. Here's someone who's capable of it, said one detective, pointing to the likeness of a man he had sent up eight years before for armed robbery. He's been out for a couple of months now. I was told he's on the booze and goofballs. He can use a machine gun, too. A few blocks away at QPP headquarters, the routine was the same. In all, about 35 hoodlums were selected as possible mad dogs. The trouble is our list can't keep pace with the growing number of bandits using automatic firearms, explained Chief Inspector William Fitzpatrick, a big, soft-spoken father of eight, who is rated as one of Canada's leading authorities on criminal detection. We know Joe Blow as the type who uses a revolver to hold up the corner store. Suddenly, he starts using a machine gun and robbing banks. It can take us some time to learn he has graduated. On Saturday, the getaway car was located, containing the Santa Claus suit and $64,000 worth of bonds stolen from the bank. The bandits had not noticed when they snatched them hurriedly that they were non-negotiable. The car had been stolen 13 days earlier, and its license plates had been exchanged for a set stolen from a scrapyard. Santa Claus associations were asked if they could identify the suit. None could. The car was dusted for fingerprints, but none were found. On reading the newspapers that he was wanted, the man whose picture had been picked out by a witness apprehensively called his lawyer and gave himself up to the St. Laurent police. It's not him, said the witness, who had picked his photograph from the files. He was released and a QPP artist began drawing up a composite sketch from the witness's descriptions of the gunman. Meanwhile, police were checking out all information, no matter how far-fetched. A Pinkerton guard sitting in a tavern in old clothes after working around the house all day was accosted by detectives before he could finish his bottle of beer. I'm connected with the St. Laurent case in a way, he said. Starting Monday, I'm being sent to that bank as a guard. A hoodlum's jilted girlfriend insisted he and two acquaintances were the killer's. Detectives checked and learned that all three men were serving long terms in the Kingston Penitentiary. We're right back where we started, admitted a couple of detectives at the conclusion of Saturday's efforts. More assistance was pledged from an unlikely source. A stocky, hard-faced individual recognized as the kingpin of the rackets in Montreal's East End visited St. Laurent Police Station to offer condolences. Only dogs would do a thing like that, said this man, whose name has been linked with a score of gangland killings in the past decade. They'll get no protection from us, I promise you. 
If we find out who they are, we'll turn them over to you. In New York City and Miami, police posted at airports took in for questioning a dozen passengers on incoming flights from Canada. Underworld hangouts in Ottawa and Toronto were raided. Railway police and RCMP were ordered to question any suspicious-looking characters and report their findings immediately. The progress of these far-flung activities was given to Detectives Stone and Aubuchon, who were now working 24 hours a day, catching what sleep they could in unoccupied police cells. What's the use of going home? shrugged Stone. By the time we get there, we'll have to come back. The rifle discarded by the man who fled the bank on foot was located on the weekend after an exhaustive search. Police traced it back to a firearms store in the heart of Montreal. The store had been a sore spot with the Montreal police for years, doing a booming business, quite legally, with tough-looking customers who wanted to go hunting. It also had the understandable distinction of being one of the most burglarized establishments in town. You stand there and tell me people come here to buy a carbine or an FN rifle. I might as well call them submachine guns. To go hunting? exclaimed one investigator to the gun shop proprietor. It's legal, shrugged the latter. I don't tell them how they should hunt. In this store, an FN rifle, a Belgian design selected by Canada and other Western nations as the deadliest hand weapon for killing enemy soldiers, sells for $175. A revolver man called Marcotte. On Tuesday, December 18th, 4,000 people overflowed from a St. Laurent church for the civic funeral of Constables Marino and Brabant. The St. Laurent Merchants Association had started a fund for the stricken families of the officers, which would reach $20,000, and the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce announced the widows would receive two-thirds of the officers' salaries until the youngest child reached 18. St. Laurent has no pension plan and no police compensation program other than workmen's compensation. The next night, a man named Georges Marcotte was arrested after a scuffle with an acquaintance whose home he tried to enter at gunpoint. In his cell, awaiting a trial on a charge of possessing a revolver, Marcotte tried to hang himself but was cut down in the nick of time by another prisoner. Police questioned Marcotte routinely about the Santa Claus killings, but decided that the possibility of his being involved was remote. He was known as a revolver man, not a machine gunner. Marcotte himself blamed his attempted suicide on despair over domestic troubles and the prospect of returning to jail five months after his release from penitentiary. He appeared in court on the weapons charge and was remanded to Bordeaux jail to await trial. The raids continued, and on the main, cabaret owners waited glumly for Christmas celebrants who didn't come. Each night we arrive, the crowds are thinner, observed Detective Stone. Pretty soon there'll be nobody around at all replied a leathery old detective whose face is as familiar on the main 
as French fried potatoes. The people who will make their living from the night spots are a hell of a lot sorer at the Santa Claus gang than they are at us. On Friday, December 21st, one week after the heist, the janitor of a rooming house in the east end of the city investigated a crashing sound in one of the rooms upstairs. He found the tenant lying on the floor, unconscious. Rushed to Notre Dame Hospital, the man was discovered to have a blood clot on the brain, the result, apparently, of excessive consumption of goofballs. He was partially paralyzed and totally speechless. Two nights later, a man claiming to be the patient's brother came to the hospital and demanded my brother's clothes and money. The nurse on duty refused. After the angry visitor had stomped off, she called the police. There's a very sick man down here with a lot of money, she told Detective Captain Adrian Cardinal, head of the Night Patrol Detective Squad, which it had been reactivated only that day partly because of the Santa Claus killings. What's his name? he asked the nurse. Jules Reeves, she read from the hospital record. Captain Cardinal instructed Detective Sergeant Wilson Colombe to go to the hospital immediately. Colombe found the patient's bankroll amounted to over a thousand dollars. The following morning, Christmas Eve, Joe Bedard and Detective Captain Maurice compared serial numbers on the patient's bills with those listed by the bank in St. Laurent as part of the loot. The numbers on some of the bills matched those on the bank's list. was the first break in the Santa Claus murder case. But ironically, it was a break that left police almost as frustrated as they had been for 10 days. The capture of a prime suspect in a crime almost certainly leads to the identification of his companions. Reeves, in possession of money taken from the bank during the fatal holdup, was a prime suspect. But because of his physical condition... He was also genuinely incapable of answering or understanding police questions. Doctors gave him only a slim chance of survival. A police guard was placed around his hospital room. Reeves' money and clothing were taken to the headquarters. The room where he lived was searched and a number of items, including a pillowcase, were seized for examination. Then the Montreal police went back to their endless search for clues and suspects. Christmas Day found most of the 70 investigators wading through the piles of typed reports, which grew each day. Detective Stone and Aubuchon managed to take off time 
to join their families in Christmas dinner, then return to the grind. A half dozen mad dog criminals wanted for questioning were still at large. We're only as good as our information from here on in, admitted one detective wearily. But some of the information severely tried the patience of the police. Four drunken youths who boasted in a cafe that they were the Santa Claus bandits were taken in for questioning. It was soon obvious that they were not, and they were released with a tongue lashing. A tavern drunk told two detectives he would give them the whole story if they would buy him a few beers. He can dream up fantastic story when he's thirsty, a waiter confided to the officers. On Friday morning, December 28th, two Montreal detectives armed with automatic rifles and wearing bulletproof vests hid themselves in the offices of a laundering firm they were informed was to be held up. Shortly before noontime, two youths carrying guns entered and shouted, Hold up! The detectives opened fire, killing one instantly. The other managed to get back to the getaway car and escape. No chance of this one being one of the Santa Claus gang, a policeman said, picking up the dead man's gun. This is a toy pistol. Some people are saying we wouldn't be trying so hard to catch the Santa Claus gang if their victims hadn't been policemen, said Chief Inspector Fitzpatrick. It goes deeper than that. The sailor on a case was the most savage act I've ever encountered. After they were hit, the officers were not impeding their escape. The bank robbers had nothing against them personally. Yet one of them went back and kept firing at them until he was satisfied they were dead. If they get away with it, the city becomes a jungle. After New Year's Day, leaders of the investigation decided that the efforts of the different police departments on the case had to be coordinated because the search was starting to bog down in paperwork unchecked information, and some instances of poor communication between some of the detectives. Chosen as coordinator was Chief Inspector Gerard Houle, head of the Criminal Investigative Bureau of the Quebec Provincial Police. Houle is a former RCMP officer who had played a major part four years previously in cracking Canada's biggest narcotics ring. On Friday, January 11th, a man telephoned the head of the St. Laurent police and nervously told him he had valuable information. You're on the right track now, he added. He agreed to talk to the investigator who sent him to Stone and Aubichon at QPP headquarters. It was a strange story, the man told. He was a married man, but had become involved with another man in a relationship which had homosexual overtones. This man and two others had proposed 
that the informer joined them in a holdup. But meanwhile, his wife had learned of the relationship and demanded that he choose between her and the homosexual. He returned to his wife and now was making a final break from the three men by telling police what he knew. Who are the men? demanded the officers. One you already have. Jules Reeves. Reeves was the paralyzed man under guard in the hospital. The others are Georges Marcotte and Jean-Paul Fournel. We have Marcotte too, one of the officers told him grimly. Marcotte was the man who had been struck off the list of possible Santa Claus bandits because he wasn't the submachine gun type. We missed pinpointing him, explained a detective, because we had questioned so many others we thought more qualified for that type of crime. Jean-Paul Fournel, the suspect still at large, was the assistant manager of a prosperous maternity dress shop owned by his brother. He had somehow escaped the police cordon around Greater Montreal and had been out of town since the day of the murder. He had returned to Montreal two days before, broke and lonely. On Friday night, he visited a couple of hangouts to learn what was going on, then started for home. Chief Inspector Houle chose four men who were old hands at confronting desperate criminals to stake out the suspect's apartment on Milieu Place in northeast Montreal. They were Joe Bedard, Detective Captain Marc Maurice, and QPP Detectives Paul Gagnon and Leo Brunet. They entered the unoccupied apartment at 6 p.m., posted themselves on each side of the door and waited in the darkness. Hour after hour passed and no one arrived. Then, at 11.35 p.m., footsteps approached the door and a key jiggled in the lock. The suspect didn't take two steps before he was pinned on the sides by gunpoint. "'You are expecting someone?' asked Joe Bedard." removing a loaded revolver from the suspect's overcoat pocket. In a nearby garage, the detectives found an FN-308 rifle, a pistol, and three cartons of ammunition. On Monday, January 14th, exactly one month after the bloody robbery, Chief Inspector Houle called a press conference. We are satisfied we have three men who robbed the bank in Saint Laurent where two policemen were killed, he said. But no names of the men were released, and few who heard Houle's words were convinced that the case was any closer to a resolution. But on January 18th, Fornell astonished a packed courtroom by taking the witness stand at the coroner's inquest and giving a step-by-step account of the robbery from beginning to end. He identified Marcotte as the man who masqueraded as Santa Claus, and Reeves as the confused gunman inside the bank. He said he himself had left Montreal on the day of the holdup, 
traveling across Canada by taxi, bus, and plane until he reached Edmonton. He told of buying the Santa Claus uniform in Plattsburgh, New York, for $12.50, and how Marcotte had bought him an M1 carbine at the firearms store downtown. How Marcotte had, while climbing into his Santa Claus costume en route to the bank, issued lusty ho-ho-hos all the way. He said they had planned to execute the robbery in one minute, but that plans went awry when Santa Claus, who was to be the lookout, decided to take over inside the bank. On Friday, January 18th, a coroner's jury found all three criminally responsible for the deaths of the two policemen, and they were charged with murder. Marcotte was tried in February and found guilty. But as this is written, the courts are considering an application to declare a mistrial. One of the other men, Reeves, is still unfit to stand trial. The case of Fornell will likely be heard this fall. That is Tim Burke's account in McLean's magazine of the Santa Claus murders. It was written in the summer of 1963, roughly six months after the events. And what took place next is not part of Tim Burke's writing, but it's fascinating. As you might expect, Fresnel becomes the crown star witness during the uh, Marcotte process. Georges Marcotte is denied a new trial. He then demands an audience with the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, For a time, his cellmate is a prominent member of the FLQ. Uh, We'll get into the FLQ in the new year. Not for today. Friday, July 3rd, 1964, Marcotte is scheduled to be hung. But then Lester Pearson becomes prime minister with his intention to abolish the death penalty. In uh, 1966, Marcotte's death sentence is changed to a life sentence. In fact, um, checking... Last execution in Canada was actually committed um, December 11th, 1962. So the last execution in Canada happened three days before the Santa Claus murders uh, in Toronto, the execution of uh, Ronald Turpin and Arthur Lucas. Um. The Santa Claus robbery caper inspired the 1978 film Silent Partner, starring Christopher Plummer and Elliot Gould. Through the late 60s and 70s, um, Reeves is still deemed medically unfit to stand trial. And in 1981, Georges Marcotte is granted parole. 
and he moves to Toronto um, and is living in the 80s under the name Albert Duvivier. In 1989, Marcotte is again arrested for robbing a Toronto National Trust branch of $2,600. In 2005, Georges Marcotte becomes a topic of discussion again. This time it's about the impending parole of Carla Hamolka and how it won't be difficult for her to disappear from public scrutiny, just like... uh, Albert uh, Duvivier. And uh, later down the road, uh, Homoka causes a dust-up. She ends up in Chateauguay on the south shore of Montreal um, and uh, is, uh, I, I think she was working as a teaching assistant at a school, caused, caused quite a, a, a row when that was discovered. In December 2012, the 50th anniversary of the Santa Claus murders, police and the Gazette's Paul Cherry paid tribute to the two police officers who lost their lives at 6007 Côte de Lies, Claude Marineau and Denis Brabant. This is who killed Teresa. If you like the podcast, please rate it, highly share it. You can follow us on social media. I'm at Teresa Lore on on Twitter, at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. There is also a Facebook page um, called Who Killed Teresa? The Podcast, and, and a website... Uh, TeresaLore.com T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E point com where I'll I'll share the entire Burke article and a few photos um, from today's uh, episode Uh, listen to us on SoundCloud iTunes Stitcher Spotify I also recently created a playlist of all the music used um on the podcast today, we used uh, uh, John Coltrane, uh, Dexter Gordon's uh, Where Are You, I think it is, <laughs> um, and Charlie Mingus, uh, Charles Mingus, uh, Black Saints, Sinner Lady, all from 6263. Check it out. Check it out. Uh, that's all for today. Uh, this has been... The Santa Claus Murders. I'm John Allure. Have yourselves a great, great day.
Annie had an earache on a Saturday of all days. So her mom brought her to Minute Clinic at CVS, where you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials like pain relief products, all in one visit. Even on evenings and weekends, you can even see us online with telehealth options. For quality, affordable care on your schedule, visit Minute Clinic at CVS. That's healthier made easier. Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details. Every advertiser knows the perfect campaign needs the perfect music to make it really pop. With Premium Beat, you get tracks produced by award-winning musicians working in world-class studios. So all of your videos will sound and feel professional. Best of all, unlike other music providers, our license gives you tracks for a lifetime. Pay once and never again. Save 25% on your next track. Just visit premiumbeat.com slash royalty dash free slash podcast to redeem your coupon. That's premiumbeat.com slash royalty dash free slash podcast.